0: Voyagers, welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 93. Losing my voice a little bit here, so I'm going to do my best. I'll be here in Taipei for about another week and a half, I think, before going directly to Honolulu, Hawaii. Although I think I've done a lot of these episodes where I say I'm going somewhere and then I don't end up there. But I do have a flight to Honolulu, so I know I'm going to end up there, but... Thought maybe I'd hit Tokyo in between, but now I'm not so sure. Anyway, impressions of Taipei so far. Taipei is an amazing food city. I think I've talked to you about the night markets already, but there's food, there's Cantonese, food from Japan, Hong Kong. I found a place that has Indonesian food, and there's a really cool chef there that I interviewed I'm going to try to do a piece for Tempo again. Uh, Just an amazing diffusion of cultures here in Taiwan. Also, if you are a budget traveler, it's really cheap. Well, you can eat really cheaply. There are these sort of like cafeteria buffet type setups. So I went to one tonight. I've actually been frequenting it. And you go, you just grab a to-go tray or you grab a flat tray, and you just load up on whatever you want. And there's everything, every type of protein, tons of veggies, eggs, um, you know, pork rice, just, just everything you could possibly think of when you think of like Chinese food, Cantonese food. And, you know, tonight I ate until I was bursting, and it was 90 which is $3 U.S. Where they have Sushi Express here, I don't think we have it in the States, but it's like a conveyor belt type of a setup where you sit down and the sushi comes by on a conveyor belt and you pick what you want. And most of the things that you pick have two pieces of sushi on it. And each little tray that you pick is 30, which is $1 US. So you can spend $10 US on 20 pieces of sushi. That's insane, man. <laughs> and you get, you, know, you get miso soup, you get unlimited tea, So I've been eating real good. There are a ton of green spaces here, which is awesome. There's a a ton of parks, and the public transportation is top-notch. So the MRT, the the train, the subway, and the buses, they're efficient. They run on time. They're really cheap. They're clean. You can also take – there's a high-speed rail to get to other cities. There are buses that will take you all along the north, so I've gone to there's a national park that's connected to Taipei. I guess I guess I guess it's technically part of Taipei City, Yangmingshan Park. I went there. I took a bus to Yeli Yeliu Geo on the north coast, and that's uh, it was like three and a half dollars each way, and that place was awesome. But I went on a weekend. You know, there's all these like rock structures that are. Eroded away, um, and they—they're just really cool looking. I mean, maybe head to my Instagram account and you could see what what one of them looks like. But there's one famous one that's in the shape of a queen's head, and our necks getting skinnier and skinnier as it gets more and more eroded. So they're all going to topple at some point. But it did go on a Saturday, and it was just like jam packed with people. So you're you're literally like elbow to elbow with hundreds of people who are taking selfies. So. Nature is really beautiful, just a a cool city, man. I'm really starting to settle in here and I'm getting to meet more and more people. So my guest today, I met through Joe Henley who I had on here two episodes ago and my guest's name is Mark Thomas. Mark, as Joe pitched him to me, is a guy who goes to sites of uh, natural disasters, I guess you'll say, Uh, Things in the environment like uh, storms and volcano eruptions, typhoons. And he goes and he films the events that are happening. And then he sells that content to major media outlets like CNN. Insane. Like the first thing we did when we sat down was he showed me a video of Krakatau in Indonesia as it was erupting. Just literally a month ago when I was there. I went to Malang, I think I told you about. We were going to go to Krakatoa, but it was erupting. And we had read a news article about like giant car-sized chunks of lava rocks flying at the boats. And yeah, Mark confirmed that. Like he was one of the people there, but not running from it, running towards it. And he showed me this incredible video of it erupting and then all of the, the smoke... Sort of sort of getting sucked back in. So it erupts outwards, it goes all the way down the side of the volcano, and then like slowly recedes back in almost like a like an ocean wave, like the tide. And obviously it's a quite a destructive force, but it's such a beautiful video and a beautiful image that he showed me. Now, his stories are. Absolutely incredible. So th- I really, really enjoyed my time with him. I think some of them were, were quite difficult to talk about and quite emotional. So I appreciate that he he trusted me enough to sort of get this episode right. Uh, Mark also has a pizza restaurant here in Taipei, and he has a really, really, really awesome record shop. So we recorded in his record shop, Vinyl Decision. And it's also like a cafe, restaurant, bar, to me, it looks like a library of music. Just a uh, awesome place. Definitely, like, I've been to a few record shops here so far in Taipei, and I think the coolest one that's here. So check it out if you are, you know, a vinyl head or someone that's into music and you're passing through Taipei. Check out the show notes for this episode, and you'll find the link to the content site that Mark does with his partner in terms of the, the footage that they film. And I'll also have a link up for, for Vinyl Decision and, and one for Mark's Pizza Shop as well. You can support the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast on Patreon, but only if you can do so and have the means to do so. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly, and that will go towards keeping these episodes coming, the education, the stories, and the entertainment. If you can't support financially, trust me, I get it. You can still support by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes or the podcast application that you use most often. It goes a very, very long way. All right, folks, enjoy this one with Mark. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Um Yeah, okay. So, I mean, first, it took me, like I was just telling you, I was in Jakarta for a while, and Indonesians are so friendly to the point where, like, someone will come up to me, like, often on the street and be like, hey, like, yeah. what are you doing here? Why are you here? Superb. Yeah, and so it was really easy to talk to people. It took me, like, a week and a half here before I could sort of break through.
1: Okay. So you you got... Over-treated nicely in Indonesia and spoiled. Yeah, I think so.
0: <laughs> but I met right, yeah. I met Joe and we recorded. Okay. And you were like one of the first people where he was like, "Oh man, I know someone that's doing this really cool stuff." Well, it's not
1: it's not me doing the cool stuff, it's the volcano really.
0: That's true. Um,
1: <laughs> and uh, you know, that that footage I've just shown you that was actually a very easy and inexpensive trip. We flew into Jakarta And we had arranged a tour guide because we've been after volcanoes in Indonesia many times. So we had people who set us up and we had a boat arranged. We we sailed the boat over to uh, Krakatau and we had the use of the boat for three days. And we got the footage, we droned off of the boat, we camped on the island next to Krakatau and... Uh, it was a, an amazingly beautiful trip and it was inexpensive and uh, you know i just i'm just not a big fan of lying on a beach i can't lie on a beach and if i if i want to take a break i'd much rather stare at an erupting volcano than yeah just the seaside so.
0: so this is this is quite recently um, this yep. is, we were actually i was with um a friend in we were gonna take take a trip. We went to Milan. We didn't go to Krakatau because it was erupting, and we had seen on the news like oh, like hurtling rock oh, is flying no. at boats and stuff. Well, it, it
1: is. It is. It, it, there there were certainly rocks that were going into the water, but you know, you've you've got to keep a reasonable safe distance. Yeah. But I would say it's way less dangerous than riding a scooter in Taipei. It's it's. I'm I'm I'm. Hopefully, as maybe we'll talk about, it. I'm a very cowardly person, so it's I, a little closer, yeah Sorry. Yeah. so you know I'm always very safety conscious whether we're a volcano or a typhoon. you know safety is always paramount in anything we do, so you wouldn't you wouldn't get me doing anything remotely dangerous but it, I mean, it looks impressive
0: it looks incredible, man <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful, that was a a beautiful shot, and we had. We took the drone there and we had uh, six sets of batteries, I think, to do six 30-minute flights. And so we had to gamble. The volcano was popping two or three times an hour, but you could never be certain that you were going to get the drone in place for the the perfect shot. And we were down to uh, battery number five when we got that epic shot. So it was touch and go. And it was incredibly difficult to land the drone back onto the boat because we, oh, sure. we had a, a, an area the size of a small tabletop and we had to land it on that. And uh, uh, the boat was rocking in the waves and we nearly lost her a few times, but it was, uh, it was good. I almost spilled my beer as well. It was <laughs> incredibly dangerous stuff.
0: Are there like... Um like legal hurdles or anything you have to get through? Because I would assume, well, there's far less regulation in Indonesia, but I would assume they would not want people getting close to interrupting.
1: We filmed on Krakatau first about eight years ago and it started going quite berserk when we were filming then. It was amazing. And I know the government stopped um, boats going out there then. Mm. And they recently, only this year, allowed tourists or, or sightseeing boats to get back into the area of Krakatau. But um, once you're there, it's, you know, I've, I've met many or a few of the uh, volcano guys that I know who have gone onto the volcano
0: Whoa. while it's
1: in that erupting state. And there are, they said there were lava bombs landing around them. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I, would not be doing that. The, the tour guide we were with thought that we were going to go onto the island and he was happy to take us there, but I, I wasn't. We weren't. We saw plenty of the rocks flying out of the, the volcano and landing in the sea. We were about, we stationed the boat probably 400 metres away and we would see the rocks, as as some of them car-sized, some of them house-sized, landing in the water. And it was four hundred meters is close to erupting <laughs> uh, volcano man <laughs> Well the the thing is they're very regular sized pops. It's not like you have one enormous one and then one little one. It's okay. they're they're fairly regular uh eruptions and so yeah, I mean I to go on the island you would certainly take in a risk. Yeah. I don't think anyone's been killed, but a friend of mine said that he saw a a lava bomb land about twenty meters away from him, and if that did hit you, you would you would be dead.
0: So you hear like so you're here in Taiwan. Yeah. Do you hear something like Krakatoa's erupting right now, and then you yep. can say, "Oh, we, we got to get the gear and get there."
1: Yeah. Yeah. Basically, we when I say we, um, I chased with a guy called um, James Reynolds, and uh, we've been we actually met on a volcano about ten or twelve years ago. Oh and started talking about volcanoes and typhoons and realised we had a, a common passion. So we've, we've been working together ever since. James, James is a professional videographer, and I'm, I'm just, I don't, I still find it hard to explain why I do it. But. Crazy. Uh, no, <laughs> I think if anybody, if you went and saw it, you yeah. too would, you know, you would see that, it's just such a humbling, beautiful thing. So, yeah, when what we do is we have fairly extensive um, uh, catalogue of sites that we stay in touch with about eruptions that are occurring around the world. Oh, okay. And they're online now. It's very, very easy to keep update. and there are also live cams. You can watch. Mm. You can watch most of the volcanoes in the world via live cam. Um, and so, yeah, they do tend to go in cycles and, yeah, if it looks good, we will. I love getting that four o'clock in the morning phone call and yeah. says, let's do it, you know. And, and that, that for me is the excitement. That for me is the fun. It's working out how to get to uh, a crazy part of northern Sumatra in, in 20 hours. Yeah. And, you know, we do it. That's how you do it. And... Sometimes you're um, a lot of the time you're landing with absolutely no idea what the next stage of your trip is. But you then you just have to go out into that car park and start asking people how to get from A to B. And how often are you doing this? Um. Well, we probably, I probably do. I'd say half a dozen typhoons a year, Whoa. and then this year I think I've probably done five volcano trips. Whoa. Mostly this this time, this year, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Japan for the volcanoes.
0: And you guys are filming this footage and then I guess you're packaging it for media outlets? Or? Yeah.
1: yeah, that's how it goes. Whoa. CNN are constantly in touch. Anytime we do a trip, they will be in direct contact as usually with the typhoons because that's more news impact. But um, yeah, I mean James, as I say, he has Earth Uncut is his company, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of like Hollywood films will pick up the footage. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Sharknado, man. Come on. <laughs> no way. Yeah. They bought content from you. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? There, and there's actually some. <laughs> even, like a water spout or something like. Uh, 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 it was uh, uh, typhoon footage. Wow. Typhoon footage that we filmed in. Taiwan. Taiwan and Japan, they took stuff from.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there were some better films than that, but I always quote (laughs) Sharknado as my favourite of being in. But, uh, yeah, so that's how it goes. And if it's a news story, then, yeah, it tends to go straight out. But that tends to be the typhoons. James will often do the news reports for CNN, so he'll do the live phone-ins and Mm. things. Wow it's good it's very very good it's uh, it's 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 very exciting and like I say for me it's about the the travel and the excitement of really quite not knowing how it's going to end up and I always I always with the typhoons and the volcanoes always kind of look at them as like a, a very strange and interesting tour guide because hmm. you don't Know where you're going to go. You do, you don't know where they're going to take you. You don't suddenly a mountain decides it's going to erupt in say uh, northern Sumatra. Suddenly you find yourself going. And we've been to this volcano called Sinabung uh, in uh, northern Sumatra, oh. and we've been there we've been there probably four or five times. In, in staying in a small town called Bedastagi, and I've got friends there now and I, I know that town and there's just no way in my life I would have ever ended up in Berestagi right. except for the fact it's next to Mount Sinabung which is one of the most beautiful volcanoes I've ever seen. Oh, and so the volcano led me to that place and it's the same with the typhoon. I've got a lot of history of going to places purely because the typhoon took me there. Yeah. And I have relationships with people and, and relationships with the places that were literally formed because of the typhoon leading us there. So it's, for me, that's just, I'm not a very imaginative guy. If you ask me where do I want to go for holiday, I'll be arming and aring. But if the typhoon is leading me there, then it, it, it takes that equation out of it oh, and it's being led. So that for me is probably the closest I could get to explaining why I do it.
0: That's almost like a little cosmic. Uh, right? it's like... <laughs> well have a few more beers and will <laughs> get more cosmic. Um,
1: yeah, I I yeah no I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't write too much into it, but yeah it's certainly it's certainly I'm being led there, not yeah. You know, it's not I'm not saying hey typhoon come this way. <laughs> Although I have said that many times but um, no, it's certainly you are literally chasing something else. Uh, you you have no choice. How did this begin,
0: though? Did you see like, hey, there might be like you're traveling, and hey, there might be a market for this type of a
1: thing? Or? Oh, not for me. No, I think I think James, because for him it's a, a it's his full time business. Okay, and he's he does very very well out of it, and he's very respected in his field. So, but for me, I've I've. I first started traveling for volcanoes and typhoons purely on my own,
0: uh-huh. just
1: to go and sit there and watch them. And that's how I met James. And uh, so then it became, we started doing it together and he was always, you know, this was his business. And for me, it was still just for the love of doing it. So, and it married up very well. And we, we're we very compatible personality wise. And we're very good friends. We He lives in Japan and... My family and his family and his kids, and my kids are all friends it's so it's it's become something more than that but no for me, it was always just the fascination fascination and the the humility that you feel when you're when you're seeing something as powerful as a typhoon and a volcano yeah it's 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 just beautiful it's it's um I, it's, I, I think the first time I ever saw a water spout in, in, in England, where I grew up in England, we'd have water spouts sometimes um, in between the Isle of Wight and Portsmouth where I grew up. And the first time I saw a water spout on the water, I was absolutely transfixed by it. And I've always loved the weather. I love it when, the, even as a small child, would have big storms coming into the UK, just big powerful rumbling storms not not as intense as a hurricane or a typhoon but big two or three day storms that would rock the house and rattle the windows and i absolutely loved it you know particularly if we lost the power we had the power out. i Mm. get the candles out and it was the best time of my life and i think a lot of it a lot of why i do this is is harking back to that love
0: i'm really fascinated lately sort of uh Especially with all the people that I talk to, sort of like where lives end up. Mm. Because my life now, while I haven't turned anything into a career sort, sorts, my life is drastically different than it's been in the past. I'm assuming back when you were a kid, you weren't like, hey, one day when I'm older, I'm going to be chasing volcanoes and, <laughs> and typhoons. Like, what did you think you'd be
1: doing? Uh, well, I, I, I've never, all my life, I never had a plan. I've mm. always kind of been. I think mostly just escaping everything. Uh, so my main business is restaurants. I have restaurants in Taipei. Oh okay. Um and and this record shop.
0: Yeah, which we'll get into because uh, this is amazing.
1: <laughs> um so yeah, I I I don't I don't really know how I've ended up doing stuff, but like you say it's um I think it's a very dangerous thing to start planning too far ahead, Mm. particularly in this day and age. um, Things change quickly and it's always good to be prepared for change. But no, I didn't. I've always, as I said, I've always loved the weather. And, you know, the first time I chased a typhoon, it was literally just to go and sit in a bar in Hong Kong waterfront and watch the typhoon come in and that that was about it and it just escalated from there.
0: Uh, I was in I was in the Philippines in July mm. and I went from Cebu to Shargao. Mm. And in July there was like a, a a massive typhoon I believe that hit it went kind of around the southern tip and then came up and hit the north and I was in Manila like 2 weeks yeah. later and it just stuck around for a long time. Just
1: we, even were, the- we were filming that one. Were you? Yeah, Northern Luzon it hit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 We were there for that. It just uh, it was close to being a cat five. It was close to being an absolutely massive storm, but it weakened just as it made landfall.
0: And it hit Taiwan, right? Or no? Uh,
1: it affected Taiwan. Oh, okay. Anything anything of that size, um, in in that area will affect a lot of countries, and that's the and it went on and absolutely ravaged yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah, without without even making landfall on wow. Hong Kong, it actually went south of Hong Kong. But the north side of a typhoon is the most dangerous in this part of the world, so it really clipped Hong Kong in a bad way.
0: When we were in Shargau, like, we started getting all these, uh, you know, weather reports and warnings and yep. things like that. And I was uh, quite nervous because Shargau was like totally at sea level, um, and they had been absolutely, well, them and Cebu, and they had been slammed in 2013.
1: Yeah, that was... Were uh, you at that one? Yep, yep, that Whoa. was uh, Typhoon Haiyan, as it's now, it's called Yolanda. In the Philippines, uh, they always refer to it as Yolanda. But yeah, we were, there was me and James Reynolds and Josh Morganman were filming um, that one and got caught pretty, well, the whole island, the whole Philippines got caught badly by yeah, it. Yeah. They, they keep the death figure at around uh, 6,700 or something, but I can tell you it's way, way higher than that. Wow. There's a lot of uh, gossip about why they keep the death to- total down, but, I mean, I won't go into that now, but I, I can tell you it was way, way higher than that. Yeah, that- and they were. It was nearly all killed by the storm surge that came in. We were in Tacloban, which was pretty much ground zero, mm. and there were uh, probably ten thousand people killed in about thirty minutes. And that was just the storm surge that came in following the typhoon, and it was pretty pretty incredible. Um, yeah, that was. Uh, that was a a tough a tough learning curve for us that one
0: i was going to say and and i i don't mean this as as a criticism but when you're there for something like that do you ever like say we need to stop filming and like try to help with the rescue effort or yeah
1: we did we did um yeah it's it's very difficult to prioritize and uh. they're, they're, when you're in a situation like that um there's also the thoughts in your head about how much you can warn people about what's coming.
0: Mm.
1: Because we were, we were travelling around Takloban in the afternoon before it struck, and it struck about 6 o'clock the next morning, and we were seeing kids playing on the beach, and they, they didn't know what was coming. Mm. And you can almost guarantee... That some of them didn't make it, and it's it's really really difficult. And we've we've often you know we we do stop when we tell people you know there's typhoon coming blah blah blah, and um, it's it's so difficult. And we've been in these situations where we've been warning people you've got to move to higher ground, and the typhoon hasn't come you know, and it's it's quite difficult. I know it seems. It's silly to say, uh, you know, you don't want to lose face. But the the biggest problem, particularly in poor communities like the areas of um, Leyte around Takloban where we were, is these people living on the beaches. And this is another reason why the government figures about the deaths were so low. They are literally unregistered people just living in mud huts or bamboo huts on the beaches and they're not registered with government they have they're living by their own rules and if they leave their land to go to a safe area they say we will lose all our possessions somebody will just come straight into our house and take everything or yeah. you know their pigs will be gone their whatever they and they are very very reluctant to to leave even if they know a typhoon is coming And that most of the people in the Philippines know way more about typhoons than I do, so they know the dangers, but their economic situation doesn't enable them to to leave. And if you go to that area of Leyte that got absolutely devastated by Haiyan, you you'll now see that the male population has shrunk. Because oh, they're the guys they stayed who stayed back to protect their houses, Whoa. where a lot of the women and kids did, hopefully did, moved inland or just all they had to do was get ten meters off above sea level, they'd be okay. So yeah, it's 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 such a a, a brutal situation to be in, but I and. A moral dilemma in many ways, and I think it's very important that you you raise that. And I think it's fine. Um, but I do I do also believe that filming these events and educating people. I'm not saying that that's why I do it, right. but it does it does trickle down that way as well. And hopefully, we do explain. Even if it's just us being there, we do save one or two lives. You know, that in itself, even though, you know, we would love to save more. But, you know, anything we can do, I think, is a positive. That's
0: one thing I've learned from travel is just like how incredibly complex almost everything is. In that even like you mentioned Hong Kong, Mm. like the eastern portion of Indonesia and much of the Philippines, they get ravaged. In such a worse way because of the infrastructure development. Yep, it's not there yet. Whereas, like I think Hong Kong got hit recently, mm. and there were there were no deaths reported yeah. because they have those the infrastructure and like systems in place for emergencies.
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And um, there was, I mean, yeah, the financial burden on Hong Kong was, would have been massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, they 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 got a lot of damage, but like you say, there was. Almost zero uh, injuries. So, the, it's it affects different nations in and different communities in different ways. If you go to the if you go to film in Japan, it's absolutely amazing.
0: They
1: mm. uh, they get hit by storms there. We've been in many many storms in Japan. but if those storms had gone through the Philippines, it would have been like. Uh, unbelievable devastation and loss of life but in Japan they're just so prepared it's mm. it's amazing but yeah it's it's very it's very uh, eye opening to see how different um, communities and different uh, countries deal with things and how a small storm can be catastrophic in one place and a mag- mega storm can absolutely do no damage in other countries that are prepared for it
0: have you noticed the frequency of these events happening more often or the frequency increasing
1: um, if if I, I suppose you're kind of referring to climate change
0: well yes, yeah. yeah
1: like i'm not baiting yeah. you but I'm no, no, just no, no. Wondering. I, I think it's i think it's a really important question and i'm i'm a huge uh believer that we should talk more about climate change and I think in the past probably the past 15 years that I've really been looking at at typhoons I I would personally say I've seen a huge change and what we're seeing more is the typhoons are going into different areas that they never went into before mm. and the intensity the typhoon—it sounds weird to say—but you're almost feeling a different sort of anger within the storms now. And I, 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 if you have if you have water, the sea temperature at 26 degrees, a typhoon cannot form. Oh wow! If you have sea temperature at 27 degrees. A typhoon can not only form, it can form and eat and strengthen. That one degree difference. Yes. So, you know, people talk about climate change uh, taking generations and hundreds of years to really come into place. Literally one degree of temperature change is sea temperature can make the difference between typhoons and no typhoons. So if you're seeing massive temperature rises in sea temperature, which we are now, imagine what that does exponentially to strengthen these typhoons. Yeah. So, yeah, just tiny degrees in temperature difference can make massive change in the strength of the typhoons and the way they act. And so I think we are looking at new territory now. And with, like, Haiyan in the Philippines, for me it was one... Well, it was the largest the strongest storm to ever be recorded making landfall wow. with wind gusts of over 300 kilometers an hour. So it was yeah, it, it, it was the strongest storm ever recorded landing. And we were there watching it, but for me, it was also one of the, the smallest. It was almost like an inverted pyramid in its shape. Wow. The actual base of it was so intense and so strong. Um, it was its its winds in the centre looked and felt like a tornado. It was that strong. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, and it was it. We we were tracking it on radar the whole time, and it looked like it was right over us. And we were outside our hotel and the air was totally still. And by all accounts, we should have been right in the core of the, of the typhoon and it was, it was dead still. And then when it hit, it oh. hit with absolute hammer blows. And then it, and then it went. It went. It, the whole, whole thing was over within three hours. What? Yeah. It was insane. We were... It hit. at The winds picked up about six thirty in the morning. We were out on the streets filming aftermath by midday with in wow. dead still air. It was that. In, it was that intense.
0: Yeah, the reason I even bringing it up, I'm, mm. like I'm not trying to get political, but yeah. I, I left on July first, yeah. and I was in the Gili Islands when. The first of the earthquakes in Lombok happened. Oh, the wow. second one was a little bit worse. Um, I had mm. literally flown that morning and landed in Bali, and that second one hit. Ooh. Then I think I was in Jakarta, maybe when the tsunami hit. Right uh, there, like the frequency of these things happening to me, at least in the last six months. I mean, like. California is on fire. Mm. The other day, Alaska had a really bad quake. Mm. It's just, it's like, what the hell is happening right well, now? I,
1: yeah, I, I think, you know, there's all that butterfly effect thing. That mm. it's very difficult for things not to be connected. Yeah, and you know, with rising sea levels, also, I'm wondering if that puts extra pressure on plates or whatever Mm. you're talking about billions and billions of tons now sitting in different areas which which could affect things i mean i don't know and it's you know i i just think it's very difficult if the climate is changing as fast as they're talking about for things not to be interrelated yeah but you know it's uh it's a difficult topic but i do think that it's what what i think is most important is that people talk about it and i'm i'm more than happy to talk to people who who disagree with climate change or or deny it and i think their point is is equally valid and interesting but i just i just think that it shouldn't be ignored and mm. i think that that's the biggest danger is is ignorance and and people willfully ignoring ignoring things yeah. i don't mind people who 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 look at uh, look at an argument and disagree with it or agree with it. I think both points are equally valid, but what i don 't like is when people just willfully ignore things and brush them under the carpet and I think a lot of people do that because they have other agendas yeah <laughs> i mean and i don 't blame i don 't I, I even big corporations hey they 've got to make money, I understand that I understand that but I, and, and particularly when you go to poor places like the Philippines and you try to talk to them about climate change and they're, they're trying to raise two kids on a dollar a day. So, you know, it's it's extremely difficult. It's very easy for foreigners to travel around and start preaching. And I, I, I fully understand how things happen. But what I would like to do or like to see happen is, is things like governments and the big organizations look at ways of addressing issues but still make it uh, positive for them. You know, I don't want to say to Exxon or whoever or the American government, you've got to stop doing, you've got to stop doing that. You you should look at ways that everybody can still win but still address the situation.
0: It's an important point. I had someone on here talking about palm oil. Mm. And yeah, I would agree that, Deforestation is bad, and contributing to greenhouse gases is bad, and loss of habitat for wildlife. But then, yeah, tell that to the people in you know the oh, eastern yeah. part of Indonesia and Papua who are, you know, living hand to mouth. That yep. they, you know, yeah, know you no, can't get involved in the palm oil business. you
1: know, you've got you've got to you've got to address the people at the grassroots about how it can work positively, and if it can't yeah. work positively. Then it's up to us. That's how I think as leading nations we should be leading by example and perhaps helping people to show them how they can still make money and still feed their kids without getting involved in in changing their society but just perhaps opening ways that they can continue living their lives Mm. without having to affect the climate or the geography too much but I think I think you've got to see it from the people right at the grassroots level at how they're gonna they're gonna end up
0: might be going on a bit of a tangent here but mm. how did you end up in Taiwan
1: a, <laughs> uh, I came here in 94 whoa so like nearly a quarter of a century ago and I I've Traveled all over the world, really, and lived in many, many countries until I get kicked out, and then like I've, because your visa
0: runs out, or uh,
1: yeah, usually I've worked in most places, and you you tend to like have limited time for working unless you really want to settle down. But I've enjoyed like New Zealand or South Africa, Australia, and Canada and the states, and I was working in Hong Kong. And then uh, felt my time there was enough. I I enjoyed it there, but it's certainly I didn't want to settle there. And I came for a visit to Taiwan and absolutely just fell in love with it. Mm. And and found it was a very easy place to open businesses and and to to get ahead with doing things. Very very accommodating and almost anarchistic society and there's really? very little government intervention here there's very little wow. um company controls like i've i opened this record shop come bar come restaurant i opened it about five years ago and i didn't ask anybody for any license to to do anything <sighs> i just signed a a contract to rent the place and put records in here, got some beer taps in and put in a kitchen and I haven't spoken to the police other than good words ever since. Never had a government worker come in here ever. Yeah, I man. pay my taxes, really. I do pay my taxes. Um, but that's it.
0: The I went to uh, White Rabbit the yeah. other day, um, which is a really cool spot but they have a very, like, limited vinyl selection. Um, yeah, it's just in new, terms of the volume of it. like Yeah,
1: well, they do they do new releases. They're, yeah. They're really good. They're an excellent company. They've been going for a long time, and they've supported the Taiwan music scene for a long time. They're uh, white wabbits, great. But what we do at Vinyl Decision is we're more about the used vinyl.
0: Yeah, it was not, like, a massive collection in here, <laughs> man.
1: Yeah, we've got this. What you can see here is about... Two thirds of what we've got. In total, we've got about twenty thousand albums. I work with a, a partner in New York City. Okay. And he he buys up. Uh, he buys people's up. personal
0: collections. Or? Yeah,
1: yeah. He's a a bit of a dodgy old dealer.
0: Uh. Ah. <laughs> um,
1: Armand Laszlo. Armin, if you're listening, hi. Uh, <laughs> he yeah, he was an old DJ in New York nighttime radio. Mm-hmm. So he's got a a lot of connections and. He's a bit of a wheeler dealer and he goes around buying up records and he ships them over to me. Wow. And it's, it's pretty good, it's pretty good. But most of the time now, more and more so, the records I sell are from Japan. Right? Really? I spend a lot of time traveling in Japan and buying up records there and bringing them back.
0: And like who, do you have a lot of like expats and foreigners coming in or a lot of people from Taiwan buying um, up records?
1: It's a mixture it's a mixture of the the customers we have in here, and the vinyl market in Taiwan's only just really starting to make its comeback um so there's a lot more young kids that are coming in now
0: mm.
1: there's yeah, there's a lot of expats, I suppose I'd say it's about half and half but most most of the business I do here is um through international dealers oh. there's some people who contact me directly looking for certain pressings particularly the Japan pressings. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and like bootlegs and, and stuff out of certain nations. Well, no, they, no, they
1: want the original okay. Japanese pressings and they're willing to pay for them and they just want the best. And uh. that's generally what we do here is very high quality, very high prices <laughs> and uh, and deliver very, very good products. And that's what a lot of collectors around the world just want. They want the best Pressing of ACDC's first album in Japan pressing with all the trimmings. And that's what we get for them.
0: One of my favorite podcast episodes I've ever listened to is Henry Rollins, who's in Black Flag mm-hmm. Rollins band and now has this like amazing life of travel. Mm-hmm. He, was he was on in
1: Taipei a, a year ago. Uh, uh,
0: so that's what I was going to ask yeah. you because uh, he did an episode of this uh, comedian, Ari Shafir, who yep. I think still lives in like the Lower East Side. And he talked about how every place he goes in the world, like he'll spend so much time record shopping. And he talked about Japan. I was wondering like if he came in here.
1: No, but that's crazy. Joe Henley uh. sent me a message saying, oh, Henry Rollins is in town. Watch oh,
0: out. man.
1: Uh, so, okay. Uh, yeah. So we, we do, there are a lot of people who when they travel now, record shop is where they'll go to. Yeah, yeah. Coldplay came in. Really? Yeah. Well, actually, it was the bassist from Coldplay, and their manager came in. And I wasn't here, (laughs) but Iris was, who you met Iris earlier. She's the manager here. So they came in, they had a beer, and uh, they bought a couple of albums. Oh, that's cool. It's very cool. But then as they were leaving, Iris so kindly informed them that... They were lucky because Coldplay were playing in town this night. No way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh,
0: Uh, I hope they didn't go to Revolver because they have sort of a no Coldplay rule there. They do. do.
1: Revolver's a great place. It's it's really good. But they do have that kind of nasty sign on the wall saying no no Coldplay. I don't mind Coldplay. I mean, I'm not a fan. But um, yeah, they do get... I don't know why they get so much stick Coldplay
0: yeah i'll I'll avoid that one maybe (laughs) did you like did you come up within a music culture or did you collect records when you were living in england
1: yeah i was i grew up with vinyl i mean i Mm -hmm. had no choice that was that was what that was how we how we listened to music back in the day um there was cassettes cassettes were also out then but i just i never liked cassettes um And back being a kid, we most of the records we listened to were the forty fives, the singles. Yeah. So that, so it had to be on vinyl. And I, I grew up, as I said, in the Portsmouth Isle of Wight area of South England, and my 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 hobby and my lifestyle really was the music. I'd spend all my money. On going to watch concerts and buying buying records, that was my brother was a football head, so he went to all the football matches. Poor fellow, being a Portsmouth fan, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like kind of wasted money. But um, I spent all my money on music. So most of the time was traveling traveling to go watch concerts, live oh, yeah. live bands, and the UK has had back then, such an amazing music scene. It's always had an amazing music scene. I'm always happy to talk about um, British music and the influence because it has been one of the things that Britain has got right, I think, over the past 100 or so years, an amazing influence on popular music. That was what my previous show I did on ICRT was UK Beat, which was all about... Uh, the latest U- UK music, and I, I really enjoyed it. But it just took up so much time researching and compiling a show.
0: Is that stuff like archived though? Can people um, listen
1: to it? I hope not. It was- <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but the music was good. So no, it was uh, no, it was great. We really loved doing it. We would, me and a friend did it, and we would take the beers into the studio and record and you'd hear cans opening in the background while we were yeah. recording the show. It was pretty laid back. It was good.
0: It makes me feel very nostalgic because, um, I mean, I, I, I say this like probably every episode, I look like a baby, but I'm 32. So when I was a kid, like this is what my basement looked like because my dad has a crazy oh, record collection. Wow. And even like weird stuff, man, where like he he had some old stuff, from like his parents were from Germany mm. and they had like... World War One sounds, so it would be like just a vinyl like of that, or like a vinyl like uh, a record of like race car sounds, and you would like yep. put on all this weird shit. When I was a kid, like Frank Zappa, mm. Black Sabbath, wow, and nice. like that's what I remember is like hearing that and like sitting there with the big sort of like gatefold jacket and like yep. looking through it and yeah, reading yeah. through it, which is definitely something that you don't get to experience when it's just strictly digital or
1: yeah, I mean that was that was the thing with the the vinyl was very much about it being more than just an audio experience i find there's the 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 handling of the record and the reading of the sleeve and the artwork involved mm. the, the album cover for a um, vinyl record is such a perfect uh canvas for artwork i mean some of the most important art of the last century has been on album covers. It's such a perfect place to put art and then you're listening to it. And so it's it's very much more than just an audio experience. It's, it's very tangibly uh, different from just downloading, yeah. downloading something and it being purely noise and digital noise at that. I used to like looking through to um,
0: even CDs would have this too but when bands would thank people like in the liner yep, notes yep. and like you would discover other bands that way because they would yeah, thank bands and like then a, you go check them out that's a good point I think
1: I think a lot of a lot of bands are very generous like that Yeah. and you know you you get turned on to other bands or other music by bands being generous with, with who they do the shout outs to but I, I, I just I, I'm not I'm not one of those people that just screams and shouts about vinyl because it's it sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. But if you play me an MP3 or you play me a vinyl, you know, I would struggle to hear the difference. Mm. I know some people will instantly be able to tell you. For me okay, so there might be a difference, but it's we're talking percentages. For me, it's a lot more about the beauty and the aesthetics of actually placing the vinyl on the platter and playing it and the reverence about it. And what you what you have to remember about vinyl is when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards or, or Lennon and McCartney, when they were writing their classic songs, as they were writing it, in their head they were envisaging that it would be played on vinyl.
0: Mm.
1: You know, that's how They heard it in their heads. Okay. They, everything they did, they knew the end product would be vinyl. Even
0: the order of the songs for A-side, B-side, I I, I know
1: for a fact that many of these bands would uh, would argue for weeks and months about which order the songs, even when they found out (laughs) the 12 songs they wanted to put on there, they'd argue amongst themselves for hours, days, weeks about which order they went into. I think there's a certain um, reverence that you need to show to the artist to listen to it how they wanted you to listen to it I've got no problem with downloads or digital or mp3 that I've got no problem with listening to music of any kind in any way you want I think all music is equally valid but for me I would like to hear it how the artist expected it to be listened to mm. and that would be vinyl and so for me that that's a big um that's that's probably the biggest uh draw for vinyl for me yeah but my wife hates music okay my wife's really? like oh she she hates music oh man <laughs> so there's no music that she I can put on she'll say she likes it wow. she simply just doesn't like music but she If we have the restaurants, I have the biggest restaurant we have in Huashan. I have vinyl up there as well. I have a few thousand records and a couple of turntables. So I play play records that I was playing there last night. I play records while people are eating. I have a pizza restaurant and uh, it's a big restaurant. There's like 200 seats, I suppose. And if on the computer, we have a playlist of MP3 jazz music and world music. It's, it's very good. And if I'm playing that off the computer, my wife gets really annoyed quickly and is always saying, turn that music down, turn it down, turn it down. But if I'm playing vinyl, she says she feels comfortable. Really? Yeah. Even though she doesn't particularly like the music, she just feels comfortable. Oh. But the MP3 just irritate her, yes. really, really irritate That's her. It's
0: interesting,
1: man. It's very interesting. And I was talking with a customer last night. They were in the restaurant with their toddler who was uh, less than a year old. And and the kid, as they came in, they were apologising, saying, because uh, the kid was just screaming, just very uncomfortable, I don't know what was wrong with the kid. And they, they apologised, said, no problem, just sit down. And... Within 10 minutes, I was playing jazz on vinyl. The kid was sound asleep. Wow. And I went over to them and I said, it happens all the time. I say, if we're playing vinyl, kids come in and they're straight to sleep. They just feel very comfortable wow. with the very warm sound. Yeah. And they just down I would think go. maybe watching it because it's kind of rhythmic. Well, they do. They yeah. come over and stare at it for hours. And what I like to do with the, I've got the turntable, the kids are staring at it and I just stop. The record and the sound just stops. Yeah. And then I let it go and it starts up and they're like, Wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's I still personally don't believe it's real. I think there's some magic in there because I cannot believe that and one wax little, is
0: playing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I don't I don't understand, understand it either.
1: <laughs> I can believe that a needle can kind of make a drum noise. Okay, I can believe that. But I cannot believe that you can put a needle onto a bit of plastic and tell the difference between Frank Sinatra's voice and Tom York's voice or Mick Jagger's voice and instantly get it. I mean, that to me is like stinks of trickery.
0: I actually have thought of that before and I just felt really (laughs) dumb. So I'm kind of glad you said it because I was like, this does not make sense to me. I
1: still cannot believe Bump's And grooves Ah. can make a difference between Sinatra and Tom York. I still firmly believe that. (laughs) And, you know, there's this... Have you heard of this notion that people believe that we're actually part of a video game?
0: Yeah, like simulation theory.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the one... I think the records are the one thing that they've got wrong. That's the the proof that we are... That's the glitch
0: in the matrix right there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because it's just technically (laughs) impossible that you can make a piece of plastic that will make someone's voice so discernible i think that's where they copped up
0: well it's quite i mean even the just like from an aesthetic point like this would be a i would love to just like sit in here and write like just the the feel of it it's almost like sitting in in a library like i feel yeah. like you could get creative juices
1: flowing in here just we because, do yeah. we do have a lot of people come in here and just work away on their laptops and do their do their whatever work they're doing I think it's good. I, I like. I've always liked libraries myself. Um, so yeah, it's good. I've got four kids at home, mm. and the oldest is eight years old. So it's like a zoo at my house. <laughs> so this is like this is, is, is where I fortress come. Fortress
0: of solitude. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's. Uh, uh, yeah. I think half the reason that I opened the place was to give to give me a, an escape route. You
0: no, know, I don't think that huge swaths of the population get to be fortunate enough to work in such a way that is like meaningful and fruitful and gives them satisfaction I mean do you feel fortunate to sort of be um, almost like master of your domain sort of like in charge of the trajectory of like your working life
1: um I I think yeah of course I feel fortunate of course Um, um I don't know. I mean, it it is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Vinyl to sit. Like I say, we have we have a TV show that's now using it as their main set for their very very popular Taiwanese soap opera, and they're in here filming twice a week. And we we have film crews in here on on a almost weekly basis now wow. from different things, photo shoots. Oh. airline magazines I mean we get and it is a beautiful thing but it, it doesn't it really we've been open five years I think we're just starting to make money mm. just starting to well I wouldn't even say that we're actually breaking even nicely okay. now so it, I'm lucky enough that I own the restaurants so that is my yeah. income and this really has been more of a a, a project of love and it's but i do i do believe if you love something enough and you invest enough in it it will work if you build it they will come and that's kind of what's happening with this place now is i i do love it so much and i've invested so much time into it i think people feel that and now it's eventually starting to to pay dividends financially as a business so but i don't think i think most people they don't have the the opportunity they don't have the time or the economic ability to open a business and just let it grow organically i've opened many many businesses and it's the biggest shortfall i see for most people is that they just don't have enough cash to mm. see the project through to the end i mean you've you've literally got to expect to lose money for two years and pay for everything. And most people, I like, always spent all their money on opening a restaurant or opening some project and then just find they can't sustain it. Whereas if they had the money for, to keep going for three or four years, it would have organically grown and they would have survived. But they just blow all their money on the initial startup and expect income straight away. And it, it rarely happens.
0: I think you sort of hit on something in there in that because I relate to this and I sort of try to like through traveling through the podcast, when I identify with certain things with the guests, like mm. I try to like learn from them and, and sort of grow with it and sort of figure out myself too. But there's something in there that like there's a there's a security aspect to sort of following the standard trajectory that's sort of laid out for you, you know, like by society, mm. by yep. you know, whatever country you're in, like the mm. norms that mm. they have. But then, like, the more I do this, the more I'm running into people, and I identify with this, where it's like, okay, I, I was okay with sort of, like, pushing the security aside to pursue the things that I'm passionate about. Mm. You know, moving moving to Taiwan, opening a record shop in 2018, even though there's been, like, a vinyl revival and everything. Yep. Like, these are uh, f- chasing typhoons and <laughs> exploding volcanoes. <laughs> these are, you know, these are risky ventures but in their pursuit of what I would imagine to be like your own happiness.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know James, like James talked about James Reynolds earlier. He he saw it as a passion that he could make money out of. And he he firmly believed in it and he saw it through to the end and he is now, that has come to fruition. Hmm. And... There were a lot of naysayers. I know his wife, Yoki, She she's from Japan. And I know she had her doubts about whether it would be a, a viable business. And she's quite high up working for American Express in Tokyo. And uh, now he's trying to persuade her to quit Amex and go working for him as uh, working helping him with his business he's doing so well so i think if you do have a dream i do think most people's dreams can be fulfilled but i and i i i hate i hate it when people are too positive and they say oh follow your dreams don't worry about it, follow your, because most of the times it's totally unrealistic mm. i think I think dreams can be followed, but they have to be followed in a realistic way and with expectations and with planning. I, you know, I, I hate to even say, oh no, quit that job. You've got to get away from the safety. Go out there and write a novel. Okay, you go out there and write a novel. And it's absolute rubbish, and you got no job. You know, the the expectations have got to be realistic and and. It, it's difficult to follow your dreams and be realistic and to have the business know-how how to do it. It's 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 not for everyone. I've been incredibly lucky in my life, just incredibly lucky. And I think the the most important thing with anything is luck. I hate to say it. You know, I've been in some sticky situations going back to the volcanoes or the typhoons and... I've seen people who have not made it and the thing that kills most people is bad luck. Hmm. You know, you're just the wrong place at the wrong time. And with foresight, most situations can be avoided.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, I, I listened to this podcast with this guy, Chris Ryan. He wrote this book called Sex at Dawn. But... He had, as a younger man, had traveled a lot, and I think he still does now. He does, like, the sort of, like, van travel throughout the United States. But he talked about that because there was this guy, Justin, that he knew. Mm. And Justin traveled all around the world, and, like, he had made money and sold a business and made, like, a couple million dollars and then just, like, gave up life. Well, not gave up life, went to go live life. Yep. And so he went to, like, he was literally, like, sleeping in, like, caves in the Philippines and things like that. Mm. And he had met some sort of like weird yogi guy, I think in Nepal and then disappeared. And they're pretty sure he got murdered by the guy. Wow. And so he was sort of saying like, well, so the guy who owns the podcast, Chris Ryan was basically saying like, yeah, I always advocate for, you know, live a life of travel, but also be smart. So my mindset was sort of like I, in, in my decisions, which are kind of crazy, I gave up, you know, a lucrative position. It was a, basically, like, assistant headmaster, assistant principal in a school, Mm. which is great for a 32-year-old guy, like, with no responsibilities and everything. But I said, like, no one else can be burdened from what I do in the sense that, like, you know, I had family members that said, oh, if something happens to you and you need to fall back on us because you ran out of money or something, you could do that. And, like, that's that's amazing Mm. that I have that, but I will not let anyone else be burdened by the decisions that I made Mm. because they're, you know... Selfish decisions in some ways mm. um, because I could have lived that sort of standard trajectory and I was like in it, but I just like don't have it in my blood, at least not at this point right now to, I don't know, be, you know, I was in a school building, you know, people think teachers have all the time off. It's a charter school, 12 hours a day, yeah. artificial light, mm. like don't get to see a lot of daylight. Like I just, I don't have it in me.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I don't, well... Good on you. So, <laughs> so, what are you doing now? You're traveling around the world. Yeah. So basically, I said, I love doing the
0: podcast. I just started writing. Mm. I had one thing that got published. So obviously, like that's not something that's going to sustain me. But I, I saved for seven years. So like, mm. I, you know, I didn't have a car, didn't have a TV, mm. uh, no kids, no mortgage, no, you know, I don't really. I'm not fashionable, so I wasn't buying like <laughs> expensive clothes. So I was able to save for quite a while Mm. and I was like, I have enough money where I could do this for a year and be Mm. okay. Mm. Um, And then at the end of the year, if I have to reevaluate, I will. I've started to sort of get plugged into some larger networks Mm. of people. I'm really interested in like martial arts and MMA. Mm. And I've most recently been plugged into some people who like have some bigger followings and things like that. And then like, you know, musicians from different countries and stuff. So, in in the end, if something were to come from writing, I'd love that. But again, like I'm not naive enough to think, oh, I could live the rest of my life this way as a freelance article writer and be able to. But someone's
1: got to do it, right? And maybe you know, someone does have to do it, right? I mean, like I say, it's, there's no there's no problem with having dreams. Yeah. They have just got to be realizable. Yeah. And it, and if you've got the cash behind you, then that's where it starts become becoming more realizable.
0: And you talked about luck, which I agree with 100%, mm-hmm. right? Like the biggest luck in my life was like being, honestly, like being born as like a white American male yep. to parents that like made sure that I was reading at a young age and made sure that I had food on the table and that like I didn't get into like bad things like yeah no it's it's
1: we are incredibly yeah. privileged I, you have I, zero control over that <laughs> yeah yeah, and and uh yeah you should be entirely thankful
0: yeah
1: entirely thankful it's uh pure luck it's but pure luck.
0: in terms of some of the other things like you are certainly right but in a way you create your own, own luck by taking the plunge like it, in terms of business ventures and things like that it might be luck that makes it you know, lucrative, or you know, foresight, skill, hard work. Mm. But by moving towards that direction of owning the record store, yep. you know, you sort of put yourself yeah, in a position to, for the luck to happen. You've
1: got to you, you've got to put yourself in a position to be lucky. Exactly. Yeah, you've got to you've got to be receptive to that luck. And it in the in the typhoon situations, I've. I reckon there's sort of like in my head, there's like five things have got to go horribly wrong for you to get into a death-like situation. Mm. You know, it's got to be like should have gone this way, should have done this, should have done, and five things to go drastically wrong. And if you're prepared at any one of those five stages to get the, the right way out of it, you're going to be okay. Yeah, And with going back to Typhoon Haiyan, we we had been chasing, this was five years ago, we'd been chasing for three or four years together, James and I, and we were pretty good. We were a lot better now, we learned a lot from Haiyan, but our biggest mistake was we turned up in Tacloban the day before the Foon hit, and we had no accommodation. We, we knew Tacloban oh. and we knew there were plenty of hotels there so we felt confident we'd be able to stroll into a hotel. What we didn't realise is that a lot of the wealthier residents in that area knew there's typhoon coming and all gone into the
0: hotels.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, we were scrambling around all that day trying to find a hotel and we found one right on the waterfront. I mean, it was like six inches above sea level, quite wow. literally little waves lapping up against the the front of the co- tiny cottage they gave us. And we're like, we need somewhere to be based out of. So we took that cottage. Whoa. And then so we went driving around doing some B-roll shots of, you know, the people in supermarkets and stuff. And we knew in the back of our minds that that hotel was not going to be good enough, but it was somewhere we could dump our stuff. And then we found another hotel by luck, also on the waterfront, but it was two stories and uh, solid concrete structure, quite a modern hotel, very nice for that area. So we moved into there. We actually just phoned up the lady at the cottage and said, we're not going to be there and keep the deposit because it was like five US dollars yeah so we we moved into the second hotel in the afternoon and we felt quite comfortable there and then the first hotel we had been to in Tacloban was called the Alejandro and that's the biggest structure in the center of town it's like four or five floors 100 year old hotel beautiful beautiful place but we got this. But they we went there and it was totally full. And they said there's no chance. And we're like, oh, okay. So we went around. We got the first hotel. Didn't like it. We got the second hotel right on the waterfront, the two story place, and we felt quite comfortable there. And then at about six o'clock in the evening, um, the latest radar satellite pictures were coming in, and they were off the scale. There were literally if we could have, if they had a Cat Five, which is the top strength for any typhoon and hurricane, it was a Cat Five. If they had had a Cat Six, it would have gone to Cat Six. It was had sustained winds of well over 200 miles an hour. Oh
0: my God!
1: And it was coming straight at us. And the trajectory it was on, it was not going to shift. We've been watching this typhoon for. <sighs> Seven to ten days. We'd been watching it the whole time and it was just did a beeline straight for Tacloban and it wasn't shifting. And we knew it was coming straight at us and they were predicting storm surge of 30 feet and we were at two foot maximum. So it was now starting to get dark and we knew it was going to come at six o'clock next morning. And we were in the room and pretty much going into panic mode. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we, I said, we've got to get out. I mean, we said we got to get out. We agreed we had to get out. We couldn't even stay there, even though it was a very solid, concrete structure. And as we were leaving, the CNN crew were checking in. It was Andrew Stevens and a couple of the other guys that we knew vaguely. And they were... It was the first the producer and the cameraman and Andrew Stevens, I think it was their first typhoon they'd covered live, and they were they knew us and they knew James particularly, and they were saying, "Do you think we'll be okay in this hotel?" and we're like, "Look we've done thirty odd typhoons already we've been through them, and we're checking out. that should tell you something and so we just we got out, we went into town we were trying to look for places in the city that would be safe and we just couldn't find anything. Basically, Tacloban is a very flat, low-lying city of maybe 15,000 people. But we couldn't find anything and it got to about 10 o'clock at night and we were basically counting the hours down with nowhere to go. And I just, I said to James, let's, Let's go back to the Hotel Alejandro in the centre of town and just go in the lobby and just say, we're not moving. And so we went back there and they were really nice, wonderful people. They're still very good friends of ours. And they said, well, one guest hasn't turned up and the room's free and we're like, we'll take it. We'll, We'll take it, all three of us in there. And we took, we got a room in there and that's where we rode out the storm. And just before it hit, probably 20 minutes before the big wind started coming in, so it's about six o'clock in the morning, we got a call from the CNN crew saying, we're starting to get really worried here in the hotel on the seafront. Any rooms available in your hotel? And we said, no, it's totally full, but just get up here. Yeah. Just get here. <laughs> and they literally pulled up in their van as the storm hit. I. We went back to that hotel on the seafront. I was going to ask you, yeah. and the, it, there must have been multitude of deaths there oh my god the 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 walls between all the rooms were been beaten out by the storm surge, and I spoke to the police people there who said they tried to get a boat in near that hotel the day after the storm, but they couldn't get in because there was too many dead bodies. In the sea, oh we getting chopped up by the propellers. It oh was, my god! It was pretty insane. So I, I, I kind of think we saved that CNN crew that day. Yeah, yeah. But, um, we we so we filmed in the Alejandro, and it was amazing footage. Whatever. It was stuff I've never seen before, and but then the storm. Died down, and we knew. I mean, we've covered enough storms, we know when the storm has passed us. You can see the direction of the wind, you can see it's gone behind you. We could see it was behind us, and we were pretty much winding down. I was thinking about when's the next San Miguel going to be opened, and you know, almost into relaxed not relaxed mode, but certainly winding down. And then the storm surge came. It came after the winds and we just saw in the hotel it was just like six inches of water on the ground but it was going up, almost visually appreciate, you could see it coming up. And it got to about four foot, five foot deep in the ground floors. So it was waist high and still rising and we, we were carrying people up the stairs. We carried one old man up the stairs who was in a wheelchair. Obviously, he couldn't get upstairs yeah, yeah. in a wheelchair. Um, and it turned out he was the ex-mayor of Tacloban.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah,
1: Mr. Mate. Um, and so we carried him upstairs. And so our relationship with them afterwards became hilariously close. We went out to dinner with Imelda Marcos and... You know, it was like, it was a, a strange thing. But the hotel started flooding and we were helping the people upstairs. But the scary thing that happened was, and you should remember this if you're stuck in rising water and you're in a room, make sure you got that door open as soon as it, as soon as it starts because the pressure of a, the yeah. water pressure and debris getting into the cracks, it just holds it stiff. And what we saw was on the ground floor there were several people staying in the rooms and they couldn't get out their rooms and started smashing the windows. Oh, my God. Uh, so it started getting... Uh, and it we'd r- really just started kind of winding down. Okay, we've done this storm, we've survived. Obviously, it's been pretty devastating, but we're okay. We've got the foot and we were winding down. But then... It started to get nasty again, and uh, obviously the storm surge was coming in and we had to start helping these kids get out of their rooms. They started smashing the windows and screaming for help, so we went through the water and the water was electrocuted, it was charged and it was freezing cold this is like straight
0: out of a movie man
1: yeah but i mean the thing is when electricity gets into the water we felt it a few times it kind of it disperses so you just feel like a buzz okay. it's very uncomfortable but it's you you're fine but it's just not very nice and so and it was freezing cold and we were going through and i i bumped my leg on something I'm like, there's a scar there Whoa, man.
0: Yeah. That's more than a bump.
1: Yeah. Whoa. And there was a few other cuts on my leg. But I, I thought I thought there was some string in the water. That's what it felt like. felt like someone had pulled string across my leg. That was but your skin? I, no, I reached down and I, it was a huge cut. And I put, uh. my, put my finger, I, I tried to pull the string off, but it was actually my fingers were in the cut. Oh, I, man. I could feel the bone and I was like, this oh. isn't
0: good. What was it?
1: It was corrugated iron under the water. Oh, my God. And I just walked straight into it and it just sliced through my leg. It was... So how did seen, you get
0: help it, it, in a situation like that?
1: Well, we didn't really. Um, thankfully, we got everyone out of the rooms. We floated them out on mattresses and then carried them up the stairs. It was all good. It was all good. It was all really good. But my leg was a mess and not Thankfully, the CNN crew there, their Filipino fixer, uh, had a very basic kit, and he had a one bottle of iodine and a bandage. So I said, "Look, give me the bottle of iodine," and I I poured it in there.
0: <gasps>
1: he looked at the cut and he said, "You need about 60 stitches on that," and it was it was a big cut. I have to admit, it was like very wide and very deep. Um, So I just poured all the iodine in and I got him to just wrap it up. And so that was good. That was good. (laughs) I had about three other cuts on my leg, but I didn't know I had other cuts. But that one I knew about.
0: You'd even get like gangrene or something like that. if you. Well, that
1: was the thing. There was a nurse there in the hotel at the same time and she was very thankful that we had helped some of the people get out and she said, look, just come to my hospital and I'll get you antibiotics because that was the only thing I wanted. Was I don't want painkillers. I had painkillers. I had amazing drugs on me. The only thing I didn't take was... Antibiotics. Antibiotics. And I said, I just need antibiotics because I know if that gets infected, it's going to be brutal. Um, and she said, come to the hospital. And I said, I'm not going to the hospital. I've seen what's out there. And there's going to be so many people. And James insisted I went to the hospital. And the nurse did as well. So they kind of dragged me. It was only a few hundred metres away. And we walked We walked to the hospital. And I was saying, you know, we don't want to go there. It, <coughs> it was... Like a vision from hell in the hospital. There were surgeries, surgeries on the floor. <coughs> it was brutal. There was piles of bodies in corners. Yeah. Ah, <coughs> sorry. Don't worry, man. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I said, I you know, let's get out of here. And so we got out um and there was no way out of takloban um, and I knew my leg was bad, but it was it I wasn't too worried about it 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 hurt, but it wasn't um it didn't feel hot and infected, mm-hmm. but I knew it was kind of bad um and then the next day. We stayed in the hotel. Our room, our room, even though we were on the four floors, had like three or four inches of water in it and we had no air conditioning and we couldn't open a window and we, were, we had no windows. We were in a central room in the middle of the hotel and it must have been 45 degrees in there and a humidity of like a billion percent. It was yeah. like perfect for infections Infection, yeah. and... There was no toilets working, there was no running water and it was pretty obvious things were going bad pretty quickly and in the whole time after the typhoon, I didn't see one policeman, one soldier, one firefighter in the whole of Takloban. And there were fires all over town, people trying to put them out by hand, it was a vision of hell. And. It's very typical of the Philippines. They look after themselves because they know no one else is going to. So it was very became very vigilante in a good way, but also uh, uh, a fairly lawless place. And so we knew we had to to get out. Um, and the next day, we James and Josh tried to find a way to get to the airport by taking a car, riding on the back of someone's truck. And we had two-way radios and I I had one back at the hotel and I heard a rumor that there were helicopters landing near our hotel to start bringing in some supplies. And so I called James and I said, there's helicopters landing near here. Let's try and see if we can get on one to get out.
0: This is such an insane story, man.
1: <laughs> no, I know. It was madness. Wow. And so, so I, I said, come back, let's try. And So we went to the landing area and I said, look, uh, we're journalists here. We've been covering the f- storm. We want to know if it's possible to get out. And they said, look. No one's leaving. We're just bringing in stuff. Hop on the helicopter. We'll take you to the airport and there's C-130s flying out to Cebu every 20 minutes. And I'm like, it was just suddenly staring, not death, but a pretty nasty situation in the face. I knew my leg was bad. The doctors said I had about 24 hours before it would have to have been. Uh, cut off which would not have been ideal um, so we knew we kind of had to get out and we got on the helicopter and uh, got to the airport in Tacloban, there was C-130s landing with supplies and they we spoke to General Trinidad I'll never forget the guy's name he said yeah sure get on my plane Thank you, General Trinidad. So we got on the plane, we got to Cebu, and everyone was saying that I had to go to the hospital in Cebu, and I, I didn't want to because I knew my leg was bad. But I wanted to be in Taiwan to get any treatment because my family's here and I really love the healthcare in Taiwan. And so I, I made the decision that we'd get on a flight the next day. So we stayed the night in Cebu, we stayed at something like a five-star Marriott. <laughs> we'd, just, we'd just come out of this hellhole and was sat having a beer buffet with legs of lamb and just the most ridiculous juxtaposition of situations I've ever seen in my life. And I flew back the next day to Taiwan. And my wife, Momping, met me at the airport. And then we went straight to the emergency at the hospital. And I was sat there waiting to see a doctor. And the nurse came home and said, is your leg okay? And I said, I think it's pretty bad. And she said, well, let's take off the bandage and this oh, was like no, man. Well, it was like it was rows and rows there's loads of people all sat there I was just sat in the room surrounded by people and she starts taking off and I'm like you don't want to do it here because it's it's quite ugly and I'll show you the photos later oh, okay. it's quite nice um, <laughs> I said we should go somewhere else and so she found a cubicle and she started unwrapping it and as she's unwrapping it she said she stopped and she said I've got to go get a doctor I was like, okay that's probably a good idea but I was as she was unwrapping it I was thinking, God my feet stink I didn't realize that my feet were smelling so bad it was this cheesy smell like really rotten feet um, but yeah it was the wound she pulled the bandage off and it was just a big green mess and they took me straight into surgery, and I was in intensive care for six weeks.
0: Holy shit!
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, they said another twenty-four hours, and it they probably would have lost it.
0: And you, after that experience, you didn't say, "Hey, maybe I should sort of like hang this up and and."
1: No, it was it, it was luck. Uh. It was that thing of luck, man. They they did a skin graft onto three areas of my leg. The needed skin grafts, and it was all good. And it was almost nothing to do with the typhoon. It happened after the typhoon. It was when the water started rising in the hotel. If you people say, oh, we go back to Tacloban, they're like, oh, the heroes. And I'm like, mm. anybody. There were a million people doing exactly the same thing in the Philippines that same day. All we did was we went walked through some water and helped some people get back to the foyer of a hotel it was absolutely nothing brave or or, or even stupid about it there was I don't do brave things it was you would have done exactly the same we just went to help people it just happened to be bad luck there was a bit of steel work under the water I didn't see and it sliced my leg and that was You know, that's I could go out into the road today to buy a beer at the 7 Eleven and get hit by a car just as likely. Um in fact, probably more likely in Taipei. Um so no, it was it didn't give me pause for thought at all. It was um it was just one of those luck things. It was one of those luck things. We were filming in Okinawa. A couple of years after that, and the typhoon had gone, totally gone, and our flights were the next day. So we went to film the waves crashing on the rocks. Beautiful, enormous waves hitting the and a guy was stood next to me, came to do fishing. He went up and looked over the cliff's edge, and a, a huge wave came up and pulled him into the water. About and he fell down about not far, about 15 feet down. And there was about 15 or 20 of us stood there, other people just watching the waves, but he just got too close. And we watched him drown. Oh and God, he watched man. us watching him. And there was just nothing, nothing we could do. do. There were, We were screaming and shouting. We were trying to get the police to come down. I was stood next to a Marine who was based in Okinawa there who was trained in water life saving and he said there's no way I'm going near that water and there was a Japanese girl in our group watching this guy drown and it was his wife
0: oh my god
1: it was the most surreal disturbing thing I've ever been through in my life and there was nothing we could do and he kept looking at us and we were looking at him and Eventually he just flipped over, and you know it's almost almost all the the things that go right or wrong for me the biggest the biggest factor is luck mm. you know it's just such a strange thing to say, but it's true if anything I would bestow on my kids is just. Be lucky, <laughs> you know. You know, sod education. You know, sod being rich. Sod being famous. Be lucky. And
0: how know, do you do that,
1: though? Say, how do you do that? You prepare for it. I think. Uh, okay. You know, I think you. I think you just stack the odds as much as you can in your favor, and and hope that it develops that kind of lucky thing but you know if if you if your time's up I I don't think there's going to be a lot you can do about it but I do think preparedness is mm. the one thing that James and I after every trip I'd say we come back and go Phew. at least we learned that from the trip yeah. and each time you do it you hopefully clock up a bit more clock up a bit more but you can never you know, you can, you could You're always going to be shocked by something. So just try and stay ahead of too many shocks.
0: It's almost two thirty, so maybe we should wrap. Yeah. Um, how can is the footage that you guys have? Is it sort of like compiled on one website? Like, how can people find
1: Uh TV? That's James's website. It's James Reynolds, you see all the stuff that we've done together, I suppose that's the compilation on there
0: I'll link to um people will find this in the notes yeah. for
1: the but I'll also link to uh, vinyl decision yeah okay cool and uh it's been good i've 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 enjoyed it. sorry for getting a bit emotional no when man I talk about that this storm. is fascinating I, uh,
0: would you, yeah. you'd never consider like writing about this one day
1: we um like a memoir or something uh i th- i do think it needs to be kind of cataloged but i i i don't think i'm the right person for it but um yeah i mean i think it's good to talk about it i know i still get emotional about it so i think i think that's pretty normal i think it's good <laughs> i think i think it is good that it gets talked yeah. about for me personally so yeah I, hopefully one day people will learn more about it, but it, like I say the what the people in the Philippines went through the those thousands of people on the beach that just were not prepared for it
0: yeah.
1: that's uh, that's their stories are infinitely more scary.
0: Well, listen, brother, thank you for doing this and thank you for trusting in me to help (laughs) share this story, man. I appreciate it.
1: It, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it very much, Tim. Thank you.
0: Cheers. That is a wrap on episode number 93 of the Voyages of Tim Vedder podcast. Thank you to Mark Thomas for coming on this episode. I thought his stories were absolutely incredible. You can check out the show notes for this episode to find links to all the information that we talked about and you will find the link to my Patreon account as well. Thank you, Voyagers. Thank you for listening in these past five plus months. I'm now on month six. I hope to have a few more episodes here from Taipei before I move on and I've got a few booked for Hawaii already as well. And then it looks like I'm headed to New York. But the journey is not over. I'm just heading to New York for the holidays and then I will be back out into the world. So make sure that you keep listening and follow along with my travels. I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you, folks. And as always, please take care of each other. Bye-bye.